In Revelation chapter 2, we are in a, um, in a teaching series in the book of Revelation. Before we get started, I want to recommend a book, Reading Revelation Responsibly by Michael Gorman. If, you are, have you, if you've been in this uh, Revelation series and um, are really enjoying it or are like you have all these questions and you want to know how to approach Revelation because your aunts and uncle and grandfather keeps emailing you about when the date of the end of the world will be, and like, you know, and here's my stuff because you probably won't be there uh, when Jesus comes back. Um, so, uh, but here's my stuff. You can take care of it for me. If you get those emails, like you might want to read this book um, because I think there is a lot of misconception around the book of Revelation and that, that sort of thing. And so we've been looking at these seven, these seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. Um, and uh, today, uh, myself and Dave Daly are going to be team teaching today. So I'll be teaching the first half or the first quarter, maybe the first eighth of the teaching, and then he will do the rest. Um, but let me, let me start by praying. If you have a Bible, Revelation chapter, one, ver, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, we're in the church of Thyatira. Cool? You there? You got it? Nodding? Okay, well done. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you so much for your grace upon uh, this church and that when we gather, you've been so kind and faithful to be near us, be present. Um, I think you get, you get really attracted to, uh, to people that are, are seeking you, whether it's uh, genuinely seeking Jesus or uh, generally seeking God. I think that you get really, really attracted to uh, people seeking truth. And I, and I thank you that you've been so faithful to draw near to us when we, we have been. I pray for grace for this church, Lord, as we've been going through this series in Churches of Revelation. It's heavy. Uh, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive this. Um, strengthen our hearts. Strengthen like our, our, our soul, our spiritual spine, if you will. Lord, do that in our church because um, a lot of these teachings are heavy to hear and even harder to live into. And we desire this, Lord. We desire to be a church that's faithful to Christ. Um, and so, would you lead us? Lead us in your word. Would you anoint myself and Dave uh, as we, Dave Daly, as we, as we um, teach and preach your word and just submit all of our capacities to you for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we've been in the series uh, called Seven by Seven, which is uh, we're looking at the churches of Revelation. And we've been looking at the book of Revelation. We've said that Revelation is a, um, we've been it, uh, calling it a hybrid document. It's a hybrid document. So every time you approach a book of the Bible, you want to ask yourself or ask the book, what kind of book are you? Or what kind of genre is this book? Uh, what kind of literature is this? Is it, uh, is it poetic? Um, is, it, is it historic? Um, uh, what, what kind of genre is it? Apocalyptic genre? Is it, um, is it gospels? Uh, is it epistolary? Like, what kind of genre is this? Is this book? And how the book, how the book is written, is gives us kind of clues into how to interpret that book. And we've been saying that Revelation is a hybrid document, and that it's three types of writing all rolled into one. Um, we've said it's the Prius of New Testament literature. Um, it's an apocalypse in that, in that it, it employs uh, theopoetic language and imagery to get across its point that, um, that the, the future reality that will happen one day and then the present reality it kind of reveals. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ. He pulls back or unveils ultimate reality to us. And he does that through John, the, re, uh, the revelator. Um, and, and John sees this vision. He's, it says in chapter uh, four that he's caught up into heaven or he's brought up into heaven or he's, he, he, Jesus brings him into heaven to show him what, what will take place. 
And so he has this, um, all this imagery where numbers don't mean numbers and colors don't mean colors, but it's all poetic and it's all imagery driven. And it's to, to reveal what's really going on and what will go on in the future. But I think more importantly, and we miss this when we study Revelation, what's going on right now? Um, who, is, uh, who, who is the seductive beast right now? And I think that's what Revelation does. So it's apocalyptic. But it's also prophetic in that Revelation is an encouragement. It's a thus says the Lord type of document. It's God speaking directly to us. It's God speaking to that first audience and also to us to stay faithful in light of uh, transcendent reality and in light of what, will, what the future will be, the new heavens, new earth. How do we stay faithful to, to Christ, Jesus' church? This is his church. How do we stay faithful to him? So it's prophetic in that, calling us to faithfulness. And it's also a pastoral letter. Uh, this, the book of Revelation was written to seven literal churches in Asia Minor. Um, th- so it's not like, oh, it's kind of, it's about seven churches over the dispensation of the last 2,000 years of history. Um, I actually kind of reject that, that, that form of reading this book because it's seven literal churches um, in Revelation. But uh, what it also does, and this is interesting, because seven doesn't necessarily mean seven, in this situation it also means uh, complete. So it's not just to the, those seven literal churches, but seven was a number that John chose to write to to express this is a letter to all the churches. And so we actually have evidence of that. At the end of every letter to every church, it says, um, he who has ears to hear, let him, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just to that church, but to the churches. So, um, so we're kind of to see the book of Revelation like as a case study with every individual church and then read through that letter into our church. And that's what we've been doing. We've been looking at every letter and going, what is, what is, what's going on then? And what is the message to that church in that time in history? But what is the message to us today? What is the message that Jesus would want to say to this church right now? So that's, I think that's why it's been a bit heavy um, for us to, to look at. Sorry, I, I hate when the fan touches me. Um, <laughs> Dave can move it back when he wants to. Um, what is, what, is the, uh, what is the Spirit saying to that church at that time, but what is the Spirit saying to our church in our time? And this is what's been so hard, uh, or heavy, I should say, for us to go through, because where Jesus um, says, well done to this church, what we've been doing at Reality San Francisco is going, are we doing well where they're commended? Would we be commended for this? So when Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, well done, you are holding to truth, are we holding to truth? Well done, church in Smyrna. You are suffering well for my name. Are we suffering well for his name? And that's what I think has been so heavy for us because it's almost like a report card. It reads almost like an annual review. Like, how is our church doing right now with these things? And then when the church is rebuked, the church, Jesus says, but I have this against you. Or in other words, it's saying, I want to encourage you to then repent and live in light of this truth. And we take that as warning. So it hasn't been, it hasn't been easy because we've been doing check-ins, like, okay, this is where we're doing good, this is not where we're not doing good, and here's the warning. And when that's the rhythm. And I know, I think that's been heavy for our communities to go through, for our church to go through. And so this is what Jesus does. And I think what we, what, what we realize, what we have to realize, is that the church has pressure. The church lives under pressure. And when I say the church, I mean us, you, me, we do. We live under pressure. We are the church. You, I'm not the church. I'm a pastor of the church. I'm not the church. You individually are not necessarily the church. We are the church together. So we're all in this together. If you are a follower of Jesus and call this church your home, we are in this together. And so Jesus looks at this church as a whole, Reality San Francisco, and says, like we said the very first week, what will your verse be? 
What will, what will your contribution be to the ongoing story of the kingdom of God unfolding in the world in San Francisco in the, the time that you're there? What, what will you contribute to the kingdom of God? How will you live into what I've called you? Will you be faithful as a church? And But the church is always under pressure. This church is under pressure. We're under pressure from culture that we find ourselves in in San Francisco in 2015. But we're also accountable to be faithful to Jesus. And this is where the tension is. The tension is how do, we, how, do we, how do we rightly be faithful to our city and contextualize to our city and understand its longings and its needs and then speak to it. But then how do we also, more importantly, be faithful to Christ because this is his church. It's not my church. It's not the elders' church. It's Jesus' church. The culture that the church lives in, no matter what time in history, has a way of pressing in on the church to the point where she is no longer faithful to Jesus Christ where there's pressure from the outside and she's no longer faithful. She might be faithful as, the church might be faithful as a spiritual outpost to her city, like maybe like Soul Cycle is or a yoga studio might be. She might be faithful as a helping hand to the needy in her city, like the SF Food Bank is maybe. But because of the constant pressure to conform, she is no longer faithful to her founder, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, full of grace and truth. And this should be our fear. We might be a great spiritual outpost in San Francisco, and there's probably nothing, our worship is intense as like a soul cycle workout or something like that. Like, yeah, you should go to this church, it's just like that, but you don't have to really move around that much. You just kind of come and kneel, and that's all exercise you get. It's great, but it's good for your soul. We might be a spiritual outpost in the city, which would be great. Okay, great, we're a spiritual outpost in the city. We might be a helping hand like the food bank, but here's the thing. Yoga studios and soul cycle can do that, and food banks can do that. We are the only ones called to be faithful to Jesus. And we have to be, we must be faithful to Christ. And Jesus has a lot to say to his church about being faithful. Actually, he has a lot to say about individual churches being faithful. So he looks at the church and like this week, Thyatira, and says, this is how I want you to be faithful to me. We're called to be faithful to Christ. When John has a vision at the very beginning of Revelation, he has the vision of Jesus being revealed as the one who walks among the lampstands. Look at Revelation chapter 1 verse 12. It's on the screen. John has this epic vision. He hears the sound of like a trumpet. Now, again, you can't read that literally. It wasn't like, ba 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 And he's like, I think the trumpet means, like, that's not what, he heard a sound. It was like a trumpet, and that was alarming. It was like a trumpet, like it got his attention. It was like a trumpet, and that it was, it was commanding all of his capacities. And he heard it and, it, and it was Jesus, and he said, write down the letter that I'm about to give you. Write down this revelation, and I want you to give it to these seven churches. And then it says this in verse 12, and I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like the son of man. And then it goes on to describe Jesus in image, with, with beautiful imagery. The lamp, lampstands stand for these churches and who's among the lampstands is the son of man or Jesus. Jesus is among the lampstands, meaning Jesus stands among the churches. Jesus is the one who stands in um, both judgment in the churches and stands in uh, a call to faithfulness in the churches, who stands in the church uh, with this sort of a sign of security that he's like, no matter what happens, no matter how much pressure you're under, no matter how much persecution you're under, I promise you, as you remain in me, you will be overcomers. But it's just a beautiful sign of also hope because Christ reveals himself as the one who was dead but now lives. And he says, the fate for you, if you die, you will live forevermore. So do not fear. There's hope. But there's also uh, in Revelation with Jesus in the middle of the churches is also a call to discipleship. Because as Jesus stands in the midst of the churches, 
he calls his churches to follow him. He calls his churches to obedience. And that was Jesus' concern in Thyatira. So let's read. Let's read this letter together. And then I'll invite Dave out and he will take it from there and show us what, what Jesus was saying to Thyatira and then what Jesus might be wanting to say to our church. Verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service, and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her, uh, strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the hearts and the minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. I'm so glad Dave's teaching this. Verse 24, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Go ahead, buddy. Have fun with that one. Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, hi, everybody. It was Dave Lomas' birthday on Friday. Did you know that? Can we say happy birthday, Pastor Dave? One, two, three. Oh, he loves that. He really loves, if you can give him a hug and tell him, gosh, I'm so happy it's your birthday, congratulations. He loves when people do that. <clears throat> That's my payback for having me teach this. <laughs> <clears throat> All of Christian life is repentance. All of Christian life is Repentance. Chances are you don't have that stenciled in your apartment or tattooed on your forearm or anything like that. Okay, it's provocative. It is uh, anti what we actually like hold to in America, right? It's hard to hear for us. So imagine October in the year 1517 <clears throat> when a man named Martin Luther goes to the, the chapel in Wittenberg, Germany, and he's written his thesis. He's studied scripture. He's written his thesis. He believes the church has got it wrong in a lot of ways. And he takes this 95 different theses in this paper, and he nails it to the door. And number one says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. All of the Christian life is repentance. Thesis one from Martin Luther. Repentance is an ugly word to us. It doesn't sit well because it's connected to being exposed, right? Okay, we are a cover-up nation. 
We, we, the elections are going on. Okay, I don't actually watch a lot of this stuff. All I do is follow Josh Wadley's tweets. <laughs> That's all I need to know. Okay, but it is just this game of cover-up, right? Okay, so the press is just digging and looking like, you did this uh, way back then, and you said that, and you voted on this, and what's the deal? And it's all a game of, oh, oh no, no, you, that's being misconstrued. Or, or, no, 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 I didn't really say that, I meant this, right? This is, we are a cover-up nation. This doesn't just apply to the people on TV. This is us every day. Imagine that, that time, that moment, the last time something you messed up on was exposed. Ouch. It just, it hurt. You are, it hurts. Like you can feel it physically being exposed. So we work hard at cover-up, right? Come on, can we be honest? Like we work hard at keeping a good face, at putting on the mask, at having everything together, at covering up our mistakes. And yet Jesus says this. He says he sees what is unseen. He has eyes of fire. That's the way he starts out to the church in Theotira. He has eyes of fire. What they are covering up, he sees for what it is. And you can read all of the Gospels, and Jesus is constantly pointing out what people are thinking, what they are feeling, what's going on in their heart. Why is it you say this? Why is it you think that? Whether it's said or not. Jesus, eyes of fire, he sees past philosophy and moralism and good deeds and the cover-up. He sees past it into, like, the very essence of who we are as created beings of God. He sees that. And so he turns those eyes of fire onto the church at Theatira. And he says to this church, there's some good and there's some bad. And I hold them both before you. So who is this church in Theatira? Um, Remember, John wrote this letter and it went around. So talk about being exposed. Every church got to read like the other church's junk. Can you imagine that? Like email thread. Just through the church, we're all going to throw our stuff up and then we're all going to read it together. Okay? And it just get passed around. Ouch. Theatira was the smallest geographically in population, the smallest of the seven cities that got letters. But it gets the longest letter. <laughs> Bummer. And look what Jesus says to them. He says, I commend you for your love and for your faith, for your service and your perseverance. And you are doing more today than you did at first. Okay, this is a trending positive church. Okay, it's growing. Things are happening. Uh, There's good faith and love. And listen, those aren't trite things. Like God is, Jesus is actually commending them for those things. However, Jesus also gives them the longest rebuke or exhortation to any of the other churches. And we should notice this, that good things can be happening in a church, in our church, where we see good fruit of love and faith and perseverance. We even see growth in good and positive ways. And still, Jesus warns his church against compromise, against unrepentance. He holds those two things for the church he loves. 
for Theatira, that compromise was tied directly to money and power, right? It talks about sexual immorality and, and meat given to idols, but we're going to talk about today how sometimes what it says, it means something different, right? It's, it's, it's a picture that John is painting. But notice that as we've read through these different letters, each church has its own Achilles heel. It's got its own thing. It's got its own junk. It's got its own temptation. Just like us. Just like us. So to understand the context of what John is writing and what Jesus is speaking, it's important to understand who this church was and what was happening in their city. Although Theatira was the smallest city of any of the churches to get letters, it had a really special significance. Uh, it was a place of, of trade and of business that was very, very important in, in this the minor uh, Asia. Specifically, Theatira was the home of something called trade guilds, right? We don't use that anymore, so let me explain what a trade guild was. If you, were, uh, if you worked in leather goods, if you worked in metalwork, if you were a fisherman or a farmer, you could come to Theatira and you could gather with everybody else that does that really well. And you'd join the union or you'd join the club, you'd join the association, and there you guys would share resources and you'd learn best practices and you'd even go into different projects together for shared ventures. It was an important place to be a business person. It was important. These guilds would participate, though, in these guild feasts, right? So all the metal workers would get together once a month or whatever, and they'd have a party. And part of this party is they would celebrate and gather together as they would sacrifice meat to idols, various idols, for, for good fortune, right, for prosperity, all this stuff. And this was happening, and this was happening with people in the church that were part of these guilds. They would go to these feasts, they would go to these parties, and there would be sacrifices happening. And, and Jesus challenges his church with their compromise, now, we're not going to get into the whole meat sacrifice to idols and what happens there. We did a, an extensive talk on that in our First Corinthians series. You can go online and listen to it, right? But we touched on it a little bit last week. Here's the point, the main thing, the main thing, that there was real power. There was real power behind the idols, right? Paul says the idols are, are not a thing. The idols are not a thing. There's one true God. Howard, there is a power behind these idols that is very real. And the church in Theatira, it was compromising, participating in these feasts, in these activities. And, and I want to, it's easy to say, like, come on, you guys, get your stuff together. You should know better. But imagine that you're a metalworking family. You don't leave metalworking and go into coding, right? You don't leave metalworking and go, like, become a teacher. There's no option. This is all you do. This is all you know. This is all you have. So this was a very real and intense conflict for the people of the church. How do we do this and live in this way without compromise? And the guilds would say, this is how business gets done. This is how it happens. So come to the table, participate. This is how we do it. This almost strikes like that chord with, with the phrase in America. It's not what you know, it's who you know. You guys have heard that, right? It's not what you know. It's who you know. We just sit with that for just a moment, that phrase. It's not what you know, it's 
who you know. That is a fundamentally flawed concept. Because it is asking you to take something that's rooted in, in truth, what you know, right? So, so you went to school, you got an education, you had a mentor uh, who, who trained you in the ways to do your job. Uh, you get equipped with real knowledge, with, with truth. That's rooted in what you know. And it's saying you can throw that out because it's who you know. And that who you know is very dependent on that who's approval of you. And you can almost guarantee you will be asked to compromise something for the approval of whoever that is. It's not what you know, it's who you know that was happening in Theatira. So similar to last week's letter to Pergamum, Theatira was a church dealing with compromise within itself. But unlike Pergamum, Theatira was, it was infiltrated. Uh, there was actually a very influential voice that was stirring this up. Like, yes, we, we should be doing this. And this is okay. And this is right. And God, he, he sees their activities. And he removes any doubt about how he feels about, about all of this by pointing out the name of a person, Jezebel. You know that person, Jezebel, in your church and what she's teaching. So this is curious. This hasn't happened in any of the other letters, right? It's talked about a people group, the Nicolaitans. We don't really know who they were exactly or what was going on. Uh, but never a person by name called out. So this is significant, and we should pay attention to this. Jesus says that there was a tolerance that was being stirred up by this prophetess within the church, to sway the people of God into compromising activities, even into the deep secrets of Satan, which that freaks me out. I don't even want to know what that is. So who is Jezebel? What's going on? What is she doing in the church? Why is this such a big deal? Well, scholars are split on whether this was an actual person or if this was just a spirit, a culture thing. But that name Jezebel is really significant. It probably wasn't, the, if it was a person, it probably wasn't the name of the person, but it represented something. Okay, so we're going to do biblical inception here. You guys remember inception? Okay, we're going three deep, all right? So you guys ready? Because we're going to go Old Testament. It's going to feel like 45 minutes, but in real life, it's like five, okay? <laughs> we're going to go into this and find out what is, what is Jesus saying, okay? So we want to know for us, what is Jesus saying to his church? For those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says. Lord, we want to hear what you are saying in our church, okay? This is for us. He's written this letter to Theatira, okay? And so we're trying to understand what this letter is, but we have to go back, one more layer, one more dream. We got to go back to 1 Kings chapter 16. Would you guys turn there with me? 1 Kings chapter 16. To a man named Ahab. Let me read this for you. This is chapter 16, 1 Kings, verses 29 to 33. <clears throat> In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah... Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, uh, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel. 
daughter of Ethbile, king of Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more, listen, did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. And there were some bad kings before Ahab, right? So this is who Ahab is. Ahab, good guy or bad guy? Oh, you think? Let's wait and see what happens though. Ahab is this king, and he is not content with the assignment that God's given him to be king of Israel. He wants, uh, he wants more power and influence. He wants other kingdoms to be brought into his kingdom. So he makes this really smart negotiation with another king, and he marries his daughter Jezebel. And Jezebel, as you continue to read into the story, she, as she comes into Israel, she brings with her 900 prophets of Baal and systematically begins to kill off all of the prophets of Israel. Okay? Smart move, King Ahab. Let's expand our kingdom. Listen, there's a king over there. You can have power and influence in his kingdom. Just marry Jezebel. Simple. Everybody does that. Jezebel comes and she infiltrates into the very kingdom of Israel, begins to systematically destroy the anointed people of God and raise up false prophets. Now this leads, if you continue to read this story through uh, 1 Kings, this leads to a great showdown. There's one prophet left alive named Elijah. And God calls him to go and confront Jezebel. And so they have a throwdown on Mount Carmel. A, a, a prophet throwdown. Okay, and there's hundreds of these prophets of Baal. And there's one, Elijah. And they set up two altars and they do everything uh, to, to, to set that up and get the sacrifice and everything. And Elijah says, you go first. And the, the prophets of Baal just start dancing and singing, doing all of their worship things they can. They believe, begin cutting themselves until blood is just like running in the streets and nothing. And then Elijah says, my turn. And he goes and he's, he takes that same sacrifice, puts it on the altar. He says, soak it in water three times. I don't want there to be any question about what's about to happen. And then he says these words. 1 Kings 18, verses 36 and 37. It's on the screen. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you are Lord. You are God. And that you want to smash their face with a hammer. Sorry. <laughs> that you are turning their hearts back again. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people, your people will know, Lord, you are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. God is after the heart of his people. God is after the heart of his people. All of Christian life is repentance. They're, he says, turn their hearts back. This is an action. This is a change. This is a, this is a pivot of position. 
turning their hearts back again toward God. It's a significant moment. 7,000 people of Israel begin to follow the Lord again after this moment. Of course, God shows up in fire, blows up the, uh, the, the sacrifice, shows who he is, and then, and then Elijah has all the prophets of Baal taken out, murdered, wiped out, reestablishes God as the centerpiece of Israel. Now listen, even after all of, of God's patience and grace with Israel, King Ahab is still king. He's still in his position. And he continues to compromise the nation of Israel, even after this, to gain political power. God says, uh, finally, at the end of all of these mess-ups, God says to Elijah, his prophet, um, who Ahab calls now his enemy. Ahab says, Elijah, you are my enemy. Uh, Elijah goes to a field where Ahab is, and he says these words from God through Elijah. I have found you because you have sold yourself. You have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now listen, this warning, okay, or, or inception, pulling back, okay? This warning comes through the story of Ahab to the ears of the church in Theatira. Just as Jezebel seduced King Ahab to compromise his faith, his commitment to the one true God in order to gain power, so it is happening in your church. So it is happening with you. You are selling yourselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now pull back. Let's pull back one more time. What does this mean for us in our context? Our context. Listen, no matter what industry you are in, what, you, tech, entertainment, real estate, education, ministry, it doesn't matter. There's a very real temptation always to give yourself away, to compromise the very essence of who you are in Christ, to sell yourself away for the promise of whatever that thing is in you, fame, money, glory, recognition, whatever. The point that Jesus is making to Ahab, to the church in Theatira, to us, Stop trying to make yourself the main thing. Stop trying to center your life and your world around you. It causes your heart to turn away from me, from what you know, to chase who you want to know. It causes your heart to turn, and it turns towards, towards evil. God would say to Ahab, be the king I anointed you to be. Be that king. Stop trying to be everyone else's king. Theatira, be the church I made you to be. Salt and light in this bustling, influential city. Reality SF, be the church I made you to be. Salt and light to San Francisco. Stop trying to be everything to everyone, every tech startup, every venture capital, whatever. Stop turning your heart away from me. away from evil, and come toward me. See, listen to this. This is fundamental. Evil is evil not because it's evil. Evil is evil because it is anti-God. 
Only God gets to establish what it is that our hearts should be set on. We don't get to, to wave and move like a reed in the wind trying to chase that thing of what is good. God says, I am good. Only God determines that. And evil, in whatever form it is that you are, are wrestling with, it will always put you in opposition to God. Welcome to church. So when we find ourselves in the thick of that, and listen, can we just be honest that every single day, every single hour, every single minute, I am wrestling with some kind of evil in me, some kind of temptation in me to turn away from, from God and chase something else. Always. That is just the Genesis 3 world we live in. Stop pretending like it's not, church, okay? Just stop pretending like you don't struggle with that. Stop telling people you're not struggling with, with there was always something tugging at our hearts. That is why the life of a Christian is a life of repentance every day, every day. But when we are faced with that, and you're faced with it, and I'm faced with it, we have a choice to deal with it one of two ways. Deal with it on your own terms, or bring it before the Lord and repent. Those are the only two options. Deal with it in the way you see fit, or bring it before the Lord and repent. When you know it, when you realize it. Here, here's the danger in option number one. And when we try to deal with our own sin, our own evil, on our own terms, you are only left with regret. You regret what has happened. You, you don't repent of it. You're just bummed that that happened. I hate that I did that last night. Gosh, I'll never do that again. Man, I hate the way I feel after fill in the blank. Ah, I was... Never do that. I'm so bummed that I did that. I'll never do that again. That is not repentance. That is regret. And there's a difference. We need to understand the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Those are two different things. And Paul actually talks about these two different things. In 2 Corinthians, it will be on the screen. Here's what he says. He wrote a letter to the Corinthian church. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter... I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Paul's so weird. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but listen, okay, this is for reals. This is what's important. Not because you were made sorry. Not because you were filled with regret when I wrote that letter and called out what you were doing. Not for that, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. As God intended. Can you receive that this morning? That God actually has an intention when you are filled with sorrow and brokenness, when you are separated from him. He is okay with you being filled with sorrow if it turns your heart back to him. He's okay with that. That's the way he intended it. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Listen to this, church. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, freedom, wholeness, and leaves no regret. But 
Worldly sorrow brings death. God doesn't want your regret. He's not interested in your regret. He wants you restored. He wants you free. He wants you whole. We're going to dive one more time back to Ahab. I've got a couple minutes. Hang with me. The crazy thing about this story with Ahab and Jezebel is that after all of the crap that Ahab does, and it is crap, that's like a holy word in this context, all the crap that, that Ahab lived out as the king of Israel, all the betrayal, all of the power grabbing, all of the disobedience, listen to what 1 Kings 21 says about him. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by his wife Jezebel. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. After all of this, who Ahab is, after all of it, God confronts Ahab one last time in a very serious way. He delivers a death sentence on Ahab through Elisha. He says through Elijah to Ahab, I am going to bring disaster on you. So what's going to happen. And what does Ahab do? It says that something changes in Ahab. Ahab has been a stubborn, prideful, a, just a mockery of a king for Israel. But this rebuke from God, this, I am going to bring disaster on you. It does something to Ahab. Look what happens 1 Kings 21, 27 and 29, it says, when Ahab heard these words, when God says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and he fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. And this is astonishing what happens next. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring disaster in his day. I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Too bad for him, Ahab. <laughs> I will not bring disaster. I, God is going to, there, there's this fundamental shift in Ahab. And listen, if, if you read this like I read it, I have this tendency to think, well, of course he like humbled himself. You're going to destroy him. Like, that's not a heart change. With eyes of fire, Jesus sees what is unseen. Only God determines what is true repentance. Only God sees that. He sees all of your mess and all of your junk, and he sees when your heart is truly turned back to him. No one else needs to give approval of that. God knows. He sees the heart of men. He sees what's unseen. And we should be hopeful and encouraged in how God responds to genuine repentance. He stays his hand from Ahab. He extends mercy to him. So for the church in Theatira, God's primary anger was not even their sin, their mess up. It wasn't the, the immorality and, and food sacrifice. That even wasn't the main thing. The main thing was unrepentance. It was this, this prideful way of, like, that's not that bad. 
Stop making a big deal about it. Listen to the way St. Augustine defines unrepentedness this way. It's a refusal to search out and face up to your sins or to confess them and admit them before God. A disregard of our sins or pretense that we are better than we are. It's a self-justification or discounting our sins as insignificant, natural, inevitable. A self-righteousness, a self-righteous comparison of ourselves to others. Can you just hear that and like plug your name in wherever it applies? Right? This is what unrepentance is for all of us. And this is Christ's greatest challenge to Theatira. You have compromised your faith for wealth and have adopted a spirit of unrepentance. So church, for us, what does this mean for us? I know that God sees good things in our church. I have experienced the power of God in love of people walking in faith in incredibly difficult circumstances, I have seen the good fruit of what God is doing. And yet, church, listen, if, if Sunday is your day to come to this building and to get some kind of emotional comfort for the regret you brought in here, you are selling yourself short. If we go into the second set, even today, and, and, and you come up to the carpets and you get a good cry out and, and, and you take communion and you do your thing and you leave and your heart hasn't turned direction back to the Lord, it, it's, you're just regretting. You're just dealing with regret. God's invitation to us is, I see, I see it. I know what happened last night. I know what happened this week. I know the lies that you have told everyone else. I know it. Would you just turn back to me? Humble yourself and turn back to me. I'm here with open arms for you. That's God. That's the heart of the Father for you and for me. So this is what I want to do. We're going to go into our second set. But I want, before you move out of your seat, I know you probably got to pee and do other things. But listen. Hang with me. I want to read a psalm of repentance. And I just want you to sit with it. And I just want you to listen. And I I am praying for cultivated soil within the deep places of your heart that God would turn up and, and make ready for him to come in and do something. So hear this. Psalm 51. This is a psalm from David after he had uh, had adultery with another woman and killed the husband to try to cover up his lies, uh, abused his authority as king, and thought he had pulled it off before everyone. Thought he had covered it up. And it's exposed. And here's how David responds. Psalm 51. Let this be our words. Hear it. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. 
against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in, in your sight, not in my sight, in your sight, Lord. So you and your you are right in your verdict and justified in your judgment. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain it. This is God's word.